invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to Psalm 64, Psalm 64, as we continue our evening series in the book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalm 64 tonight is a lament. Uh, laments, as um, we've learned before, are prayers in pain. And uh, this is a prayer in pain that leads ultimately to trust. Psalm 64. Let's give our attention to God's Word tonight. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search, for their inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. That's the Lord to bless his word. Lord, we now ask for your spirit that you have given to us, promising that he will lead us and guide us into your truth. Pray, Lord, that that spirit would open our eyes and hearts to receive your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message tonight is From Panic to Praise. Uh, David is writing this psalm from a place of great fear, a place of dread. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Uh, he's not only dealing with the outward reality of people who want to destroy him, but uh, David's dealing with the inner, rea- inner reality of uh, his emotional response, this, this paralyzing fear, uh, this, uh, this great uh, overwhelming dread that he's experiencing. I, uh, I, th- I think we have all know what that experience is like, that experience of, of being frightened, deeply frightened, deeply afraid. Uh, and you, can, you maybe have even experienced the sense of being paralyzed uh, by fear, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to respond. I remember the first time I had this experience, I was just a young guy, I had to be maybe somewhere between 10 and 13, I suppose, 10, and um, it, was, it was a winter night, and um, wind was blowing, I couldn't sleep, uh, I got up and I looked out the window of the upstairs bedroom, out looking over the, the barnyard, and uh, you could just see the wind was, was blowing, the, the snow was falling uh, um, rapidly, and the, and the light was on. We had, we had a yard light, of course, that was on, and I saw this shadowy, dark figure making its way across the barnyard. Well, my uh, fertile imagination immediately realized that this was the leader of a whole gang of men who were hiding in the barn, and they were just scoping out the place and ready to attack. And I was literally paralyzed at that moment with fear. Uh, could not even get back to bed. Uh, the next morning I realized it was just dad going out to check the cows. But um, it was paralyzing. Well, maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe um, you found uh, a lump in your body uh, that, that was not supposed to be there. And uh, you went to the doctor and you could tell by the look in her eyes. Or maybe when the prognosis came back. Uh, and the word cancer was used. 
and you experience this paralyzing fear. Maybe it's when a child says, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. Uh, maybe it's when um, a boss says, uh, you're not needed here anymore. Uh, maybe it's when a spouse says, I don't love you anymore. Uh, there are paralyzing things that we experience in life. And David is in one of those moments. And we see here the path that David takes from panic to praise. Uh, we're not told exactly what the occasion was, though many commentators, and I think they're right, believe that Psalm 64 is a companion to Psalm 63. You'll find that throughout the Psalter, where there will be one or two or maybe three or four even Psalms that are, are linked together to an event. And uh, remember when we talked about Psalm 63, we noted that David is on the run from Absalom in the wilderness of Judah. Absalom, his own son, is trying to um, take over the throne and trying to kill his father, trying to take David's life. And David David's on the run. And so the, the enemies that David speaks of here are not figments of his imagination. This isn't a metaphor for something. Uh, the, the enemies are very real. You notice that the psalm is divided into three stanzas. Verses 1 through, um, one through 6 uh, talk about the enemies and the danger that David is in. Verses 7 through 9, uh, our direction is, is focused on, our attention is focused on, on God and what God does and the deliverance he brings. And then verse 10, the righteous one's response. And so we'll uh, follow the, that breakdown tonight. First then, uh, David's, uh, the danger that he's in. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Uh, David begins asking, Lord, to hear my complaint. Now, when we, think, when we hear the word complaint, we think of someone complaining, someone whining. Boys and girls, maybe your parents have said, stop your complaining. Well, uh, David is not complaining in that sense. This is the idea of bringing a cause, uh, bringing your case before the, the court, the court of heaven. David is, is coming before the, uh, the judge of heaven and earth, coming to God and, and requesting that his case be heard. This is exactly, of course, what God calls us to do, asks us to do, when we are facing trouble. Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Uh, you can see the urgency of David's plea when he confesses that he's experiencing dread. He's not, he's not just concerned, not just afraid even, but there's an incapacitating terror taking place. Which is surprising if you remember who David is. David is the great warrior. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. He has been in great danger countless times on the battlefield. And yet David's courage was proven over and over again as this mighty warrior. So what would cause a man like this to be filled with dread? Well, we're told in verse 2, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked from the throng of evildoers. Uh, there is a throng bent on destroying him. Richard Phillips says, David is not facing impulsive outbreaks of opposition or malice. No, this is a cold, evil calculation that is bent on doing him as much harm as possible. There are people who want David dead, and they, they have uh, made their plans, and, and now the, those plans are being put in motion. Uh, David's dread is, is, is further intensified by the, uh, the, choice, the enemy's choice of weapons. See that in verse 3. 
who wet their tongues like swords and aim bitter words like arrows. Now remember, David again is a warrior. He, he's comfortable on the battlefield. David knows how to fight off the thrust of an enemy spear. He knows how to uh, deflect the swing of a Philistine sword. But how do you defend yourself from words? How do you defend yourself from slander, from lies? Uh, if, you, if you've ever had that experience, you, you, you know how helpless uh, you feel. I, I've had people slander me, say awful things about me. And, and of course, they don't say them to your face. Well, sometimes they do, but that's, that's much better. Uh, but when you hear about it through the grapevine, and uh, do you know what so-and-so is saying about you? Well, if that's happened to you, you know how incredibly powerless you feel. How do you, how do you defend yourself against that? You, you cannot defend yourself against that. You, you can't put up a billboard on 131 saying it's not true. There's nothing you can do. The word has been spoken. The lie has been sown. The slander has been cast into the wind, and there's no getting it back. It's done. Your reputation will be uh, tainted uh, or ruined. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It can't be fixed. And, and David is experiencing this. Um, the, the lies have been spoken. The arrows have been let loose. And he's completely powerless. He's completely helpless to defend himself. Uh, the dread is further intensified in verse 4. By just the brazen boldness of his enemies, verse 4, they shoot from ambush at the blameless, suddenly and without fear. Uh, these are people who are committed to an evil cause, and they are they're very, very confident, very, um, uh, very committed to the evil that they're performing. And it's profoundly evil. Notice, they're shooting at the blameless, and they do it without fear. No, no fear of consequences. It, it just reminds you of, uh, maybe uh, it reminded me of uh, the, the, what's been called the knockout game, if you've heard of that, uh, where groups of uh, young men uh, in, in large cities, uh, New York City has a lot, a lot of this, um, they have, they have a, it's called the knockout game, where they just walk down the street and they sucker punch elderly men and women uh, who cannot defend themselves. Uh, they, just, they just walk by, smash them as hard as they can in the face, trying to knock them out. The victims have done nothing to warrant it. One moment they're walking down the street, the next moment they have a fist crashing into their face, and they're laid out, often hospitalized, uh, sometimes crippled um, severely. It's just, it's just incredible evil. And the young men who do this uh, do it without fear. They do it in broad daylight. No fear of consequences. <clears throat> and that's exactly what's going on with these, with these men. Um, David says in verse 5, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They're not going to be swayed from it. They talk of laying their snares secretly, thinking who can see them. You see, that's the root of their, of their boldness. Who can, who can see us? They, the, the idea here is they think they're going to get away with it. There won't be any consequences. There will be no, um, no holding to account now, if you if you faced an enemy like that, you know it's it's frightening because that means that that person has no governor. If you know what a governor is, a, on, an, on an old gasoline engine, a governor is what keeps it from um, idly from the RPMs from going too high and blowing your motor. So it, it, it just limits how fast the, the the engine can turn over. Well, if there's no governor, nothing to limit it. Well, then they can do anything. And people who have no fear of consequences, no fear of God in that. Are, well, there's no governor. There's no limit. 
They are willing to do and to say whatever it takes to accomplish their evil purpose. And if you're in their path, well, that can be a very frightening place to be. Now, if we're correct in suggesting that this uh, Psalm 64 is linked with Psalm 63, that means that uh, David is referring here to Absalom's rebellion. He's hiding somewhere in the wilderness of Judah, almost certainly in a cave, and watching his life unravel because of Absalom's slanderous attack. Have you ever wondered how Absalom was, was nearly able to pull off his coup? How in the world does that happen to a man like David, the beloved king of Israel? Uh, David, the one who um, everyone knew was God's anointed king. Uh, the one who had beaten back the Philistines and expanded the, the, uh, the boundaries of the kingdom as no one ever had. The nation was flourishing under David's reign. So how is it possible that Absalom was managed to convince the people and the, the majority of the army and even David's closest counselor, Ahithophel, all of them uh, convinced to betray David. How did Absalom do it? What sort of spell did he cast on them? Well, we're told of that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. You can read it yourself, but we're told that Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king to David for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And, and when he said, uh, uh, your servant is of such and such a tribe, uh, Absalom would say to him, see, your, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. The king isn't taking care of you. The king's not providing for you. He's, he's not concerned about your cause, not concerned about justice. Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Sounds like a politician, doesn't he? And so whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You see, Absalom engaged on this subtle campaign of persistently undermining David's authority. David doesn't really care. David's not going to take care of you. And he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And once that had happened, you see, David was done. It was, it was over in that sense. The die has been cast. And so he's sitting there in a the cave running for his life, realizing, experiencing the devastating power of Absalom's uh, slander, Absalom's verbal attacks and the arrows that have been let loose by Absalom. David knows what he's talking about. And some of you do too. You've experienced um, the, the evil and the harm of real slander, accusations and lies that have been told about you. And in our, uh, in our culture that we live in today, I think we need to buckle up because it is the new weapon of choice uh, as our culture engages uh, or, or goes on the attack against Christianity. That we, need, we need to be ready to be maligned, ready to be slandered. Uh, Jesus says we will experience it. Well, so that's the reality David's living in, but David in verses 7 through 9 comforts himself with the conviction that though these men confidently say, who will see us? Well, David knows who will see them. God will see them. And God will intervene. And God will intervene in a way that has a direct relationship to the attacks and uh, of these, the acts of these men. So you'll find in verses 7 through 9 sort of this parallel relationship going on with what we see in verses 1 through 6. For instance, look at verse 7. 
So these men are shooting their arrows, but God has arrows of his own, verse 7. God shoots his arrows at them. And whereas these wicked men uh, suddenly launch their ambush at the blameless, well, God has a sudden act of his own. They are wounded suddenly. We see that these people in verse 8, that uh, they brought others to ruin with their tongue. Verse 8, they are brought to ruin, their own tongues turned against them. And all will see will wag their heads. It just means that, that, that their own words are going to be used in the court of God to convict and judge and destroy them. Words have meaning. Words have significance. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment that people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. If you think words are small things, Jesus does not, and God records. Verse 9, you see that while they displayed a fearless disregard for God in their life, they had no concern for God, a God will glorify His name in their destruction. Verse 9, then all mankind fears, and they tell what God has brought about and ponder what He has done. A God is going to intervene. God is going to act, and He's going to deliver David from His enemies. And so David calls uh, all the, the righteous to rejoice, verse 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. I just want you to notice two things quickly here. First, that David's joy is primarily in the vindication of God's name. God is being, uh, God is being ignored, uh, but God is going to respond and people are going to be talking about what God has done. They're going to ponder what God has done. Um, God's vindication, you see, is going to be David's vindication as God takes a stand for his, his cause. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But notice also, David calls everybody to rejoice and to, and to seek refuge in God, though God's deliverance hasn't happened yet. He's not saying, uh, Lord, uh, I, I, you know, thank you for showing up and doing this. He says, um, I know that God is going to do this. God is, is going to uh, be my refuge. God is going to deliver me. And the confidence that David has in God's future deliverance is sufficient to give him peace in the moment, in the, in the, in the present. Well, that's Psalm 64. How do we... How do we apply a psalm like this? How do you understand a psalm like this? Because uh, it could be easily misapplied. You could easily uh, read this psalm and think, well, um, moral of the story, if you just trust the Lord, your life will be fine and God will defeat your enemies. Let's, let's sing. Right? That's, that's Psalm 64. But if you stop and think about it, um, that sort of shallow interpretation doesn't ring true. Um, John the Baptist trusted the Lord and his enemies cut off his head. A Stephen the deacon trusted the Lord and he was stoned to death. Uh, all of the disciples, as far as we know, experienced a similar fate. All trusted the Lord. And how many countless martyrs over the history of the church have not experienced um, not just being maligned and persecuted, but actually put to death by their enemies? And we might be as well. So how do you interpret a psalm like this uh, in, in light of, of that truth. Well, there are several principles of interpretation that I think help to bear in mind. First, uh, David is not writing this simply as an individual. This isn't just um, David reflecting on his troubles and God's help. 
David, we need to remember who he is. He is God's divinely anointed king, the king of God's people. So this isn't just about David's personal enemies and uh, his personal well-being. It, it is, it's about the enemies of God's kingdom and the welfare of God's kingdom. David's enemies are God's enemies. They, they are uh, men who are Psalm 2 people, right? The, the kings uh, and the nations, they gather together and they, and they say, let us throw off the bonds, right? Let's, let's get rid of God's rule. So that's what's going on here. And that's why David calls the upright, the righteous ones, to exalt because when God acts, when God restores David's throne, God is being faithful to his covenant purposes and his promises, and God's faithfulness means the deliverance of all those who love the Lord. One, an important principle here is that so, so often when we, when we read the Bible, we're, we're looking for how do we... Uh, read this in a way that brings God down into our story. So I'm experiencing these things. How does this text help bring God into my story? Well, there's certainly truth to that, 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 that we can take these things and we need to take them, these things to ourselves. But there's, a, there's another principle we need to keep in mind that Scripture is primarily given to us not to show us how to bring God into our story, but Scripture is given to us uh, as God's story and God's invitation and His drawing us up into His story. There's something bigger here than our story. There's something more glorious here than just what God is willing and able to do for you and me individually. There is a grand scheme of redemption taking place where God in Jesus Christ is saving uh, the world and making everything new and defeating His enemies for the glory of His name. That is the primary story of Scripture. And we find comfort and strength then when we for the moment maybe set our story aside and, and get lost in God's story. Or maybe I could say it this way. When we bring the reality of our story and interpret that in light of the reality of God's story. So, because I'm convinced that's where David's comfort comes from. That his experience here matters because his experience is part of God's grand scheme of redemption. And that the people of Israel are invited to rejoice in David's deliverance because their deliverance is wrapped up in his as those who belong to God's kingdom. So secondly then, this, this psalm needs to be interpreted then in light of that grand story and in light of Jesus, uh, David's greater son. Remember, Jesus grew up singing this psalm. And Jesus experienced this psalm. Can you imagine Jesus singing this psalm when his enemies are attacking him and uh, they have their own secret plots and his enemies are devising ways. Look at uh, verse, uh, verse 6. They search out injustice. They are very committed. They say, we've accomplished a diligent search to harm Jesus. A diligent search to find some way to destroy him. They were constantly shooting the arrows of slander and lies. And in the end, that's what, what uh, carried the day, right? What, what was it that brought Jesus to the cross? It was the slanderous lie that he had blasphemed. That's what, that's what accomplished it in, in human terms. So Jesus has experienced uh, the, the reality of the arrows of men. And if we read Psalm 64 tritely, right, then we, we, we would uh, infer that Jesus should have been rescued from his enemies. But he wasn't. 
You see, the the glory of the gospel is much deeper than that. Jesus didn't receive an arrow from God to defeat his enemies. Jesus was the arrow of God to destroy his enemies and to deliver his people. Jesus was the arrow. And by his obedient life and his atoning death and victorious resurrection, Jesus was the great weapon of God that accomplishes the sudden, complete overthrow of the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and accomplished the eternal victory for all of his people. So that, regardless, whatever the circumstance we find ourselves in, we have reasons to rejoice because we are victors. In Jesus, his victory is ours. We are more than conquerors in him. And that means then that we read this psalm in light of Christ's victory. This psalm helps us to remember that as those who follow Christ, uh, it doesn't mean that we will not face evil. It just means we don't need to fear evil. We will be maligned. Jesus promises it, Matthew chapter 10. They will malign you. They will falsely accuse you. You will be slandered in in, in vicious, evil ways by people who are seeking to destroy you. Do not kid yourself. The devil is real. The devil is at work in our world. Jesus promises, promises that these things will happen to us. But we don't need to panic. We don't need to be in dread. The victory of Jesus Christ means that We actually can rejoice. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when people say all manner of evil against you falsely. Falsely. For my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, friends, the the, the comfort and the, the confidence that a psalm like this brings to us is that it doesn't matter what the enemy does. The enemy is a defeated foe. It doesn't matter what, our, uh, what people might say about you. No matter, it doesn't matter how they, they try to destroy you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And no matter how fierce the attack, your victory is as certain as Jesus' victory if you belong to him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're safe. You're safe. And you can say to the fear that is within you, speak truth to it. I am in Christ. I belong to Jesus. My life is not determined or defined by the, by the, uh, the, the attacks of the enemy. My life is defer- determined and defined by the victory of Jesus Christ, his love for me, a love that will never, ever, ever let me go. And that gives us courage. That gives us boldness. That gives us peace. Brothers and sisters, we don't have reasons for fear. We have wonderful reasons for praise. And let's be people then who do it. People who are um, talking about what God has done, pondering what God has done, giving God all the praise and the glory for what he's done and what he's doing for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Father, I thank you so much that you are God who has cared for us and loved us in Jesus, and you have caught us up into this great drama of redemption where our lives now matter eternally because we are Christ's. Father, you know the the fears that we face. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we see ourselves hid with Christ in God, 
as we realize that nothing can harm us here, I pray, Lord, that we, that we would be bold, bold to speak for Jesus, willing to suffer in faith, in truth, as we bear his name. Father, I, I pray that whatever fears we, we experience, that, Lord, as we, as we see who and what we are in Christ, and, and we lay hold of what you are accomplishing in him, and that one day soon, the heavens are going to be rolled back. One day soon, Jesus Christ, the awesome judge of heaven and earth, will appear. Oh God, I pray that you would give us courage and peace as we rest in you. That in quietness and trust, we would find your strength at work in our lives. Lord, make this truth to change how we think and how we feel, how we live, how we act. And Lord, I pray that it would cause us to rejoice in you, even in the midst of trial. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let's respond to God's word tonight, uh, singing together of our Redeemer. Let's stand together and rejoice in Jesus.
Amen. Amen. Now as you go into the week that God has ordained for you, uh, the good works that he has um, prepared for you to do, go with his blessing. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God your Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you till Christ come again. Amen.